A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. Really glad to have you here, and I think you're really going to enjoy our guest today. Today, I'm talking with Craig Bettenhausen, business reporter at Chemical and Engineering News. You've probably seen some of his articles. He covers a variety of topics, including chemicals, carbon capture, industrial gases, biofuels, etc. He also, interestingly, writes for the CNEN Chemistry and Pictures feature, where really cool photographs of chemistry are featured. So, Greg, Craig has been doing this for about a decade. He has a background in chemistry and organic, it sounds like. And maybe he'll tell us a little bit more about that. And uh, we're just going to be having a great conversation. So, Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Craig, what's your origin story? How did you get started writing about chemistry and chemicals? Yeah, so, I mean, my background is in academia. I mean, I came to CNEN after being in graduate school, I mean, like a lot of science writers, I mean, I'm sort, of, I'm sort of a science writer and sort of a business writer, which I actually enjoy that dynamic, but common to a lot of science writers, I was a bench chemist working on a PhD at Hopkins, kind of decided that wasn't for me. I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't doing it all that well, but I was really enjoying and doing well at all the communications part. And I had a talk to give or something to write, you know, I was enjoying it and I was, it was successful at it. So when I decided to leave graduate school, I was looking at you know, science communication as a career. So I was in, in the running for a teaching job here in Baltimore. And then I also got, and then I got the offer here at CNEN to join the production department. And that seemed like an unusual, a rare opportunity. So I you know, yeah, loved absolutely. that. Yeah, so I did that. And so, yeah, I was in the production department here at CNEN for a long time, which is you know, a lot of back-end stuff, but I would also be writing you know, when I wanted to. And that's how the chemistry and pictures started was during that been at a meeting and we had kind of a, I heard about a different, a totally different type of outlet doing a similar feature where it's just a cool image relevant to the topic for the magazine, accompanied by a short caption and that's it. It doesn't have to be newsworthy. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it's just a cool image because cool images are nice. And so I pitched that at CNN as a feature and it took off and we've been doing that for, I think that feature has been around for like eight years of my 10 years at CNN. That's pretty awesome. I, I've seen some of those photos and they are pretty amazing. It's a fun feature to work on. And it's also cool because, I mean, these days, especially, a lot of our stuff is sent in by readers. And so that's really fun to have that kind of interaction, a really direct interaction with the readers. I mean, some of the high school teachers and middle school teachers actually send in with the best written captions. I've had a few where I just went ahead and gave them the entire byline. Cause like I did very little to this post. <laughs> this is just a... So between that and then a couple other, you know, several other pieces I'd written, an opportunity came up in the business group to move into becoming a full-time reporter. Uh, so I took that leap a couple of years ago now, and uh, yeah, it's, it's going all right so far. I've, I've been enjoying it. That's awesome. And I know you've been, I've seen a lot of your stuff. In fact, I think I did a quick tally and it looked like your byline had over 150 articles this year. That's pretty pro, that's quite prolific in my world, those writing. 
I keep busy. I mean, the, the chemistry and pictures, they're shorter. And I do, I write a third of those. So that does sort of bump up my count a little bit. But I, I, I definitely was far above my, in theory, my column target for the year. So. so what were the biggest or most surprising stories of 2021? The biggest story for me, for sure, this year was I did a big cover story about carbon capture technologies. And that was over the summer. And they'd been, like, it was literally the biggest story I've ever written, like lengthwise. In terms and of word the, count and topic? or Yeah, okay. Exactly. And one, one of the larger cover stories that CNN's run, because it was just a big topic. I'd done some coverage of carbon capture, first coming into it through industrial gases. And then there were some carbon dioxide shortages earlier in the pandemic. So I kind of got on the carbon dioxide beat, if you will. And then we decided to do this ambitious story about carbon capture technology. And so there was a ton of reading, a ton of talking to a lot of people. And it was a huge amount of work. I spent months doing that article. Really? And it, yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a chemist by training. I, I understand some of the stuff, but it's, there's a lot going on. It's a busy, busy field right now. Yeah, it really it made really sense busy. as a cover story. Yeah. yeah. What was, so what did you find was like most significant about carbon capture? What's really, I think what you is, know, what's, where's the buzz on? I mean, I think there's a lot of buzz, but is there, you know, what do you guys find is the real buzz or the real interesting piece of this? I think that there's, there's two parts that are really interesting. One thing is that it does potentially offer a way to keep a lot of the existing infrastructure, both power infrastructure and chemical processes in place, while also meeting the climate goals that are increasingly everyone's agreeing are you know, important. It, you know, it has a cost for sure. It's, it's more expensive than just venting the carbon dioxide, but it does allow you to not scrap your entire plant. And that's really huge. And, you know, I mean, you know, from the progressive standpoint, we want to bring in some new technologies. We want to get new efficient technologies, but we also don't necessarily have time to do it all with brand new technologies, brand new factories built from the ground up and carbon capture, you know, lets us do that. The other thing that makes it really interesting and for the chemical industry is because it's chemical industry, it's a chemical process, carbon capture, most of them. And so, you know, as a chemistry magazine, these are the companies that we would be writing about anyway, in a lot of cases. I mean, you know, Shell Chemical has carbon capture and you know, Mosaic Materials, which is doing a lot of carbon casual work, was one of our 10 startups to watch a few years ago. And so it ends up being that it's a good fit for our audience and our usual coverage. Yeah, absolutely. And I do notice that when you, you know, you type, said that this took months, I know that when I look at your articles, even if it looks like it's going to be kind of a press release kind of content, you're getting some other perspectives other than from maybe the businesses that are named. You're going out and getting perspectives from NGOs or other people across the industry, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important of what, you know, part of what we can do, you know, with part of the value add that we have as a magazine is getting that additional perspective. Because you, you know, if you kind of look at, you know, where the stories come from, I don't know if you want to jump, jump ahead to that. Yeah, but, let's do it. Let's talk about where do those stories come from? Because that's always a mystery to me as well. You kind of have to divide our magazine and a lot of other magazines into like the news section and then the features. You know, the news is like the shorter articles, 120 to 600 words or so. And it's really driven by something happened. And a lot of those really do start with a press release or another or a pitch from a PR person they said, hey, our company did this thing for the business group, for the science group and the government group, the sources are other things. The science group is going to be writing from journal articles and the policy group is, I don't know, I don't, their news comes from a lot of different sources, the policy group, but especially in the shorter pieces, those are kind of taken from press releases. And so to get a story in CNN, you got to get us the right kind of press releases, uh, basically. And you know, we'll look at maybe 40 press releases in a week and decide on, you know, the 15 to 20 that we end up going with. 
And it's kind of, you know, kind of one of the best, which one is the best ones, which one of the biggest stories, which are the ones that have impact that goes beyond this one specific company. Got it. So, so it has to be value beyond their own company. It's got to have interest elsewhere, et cetera. Yeah. And sometimes that if it's just a really big deal, that interest can be just like, wow, that's a big deal. You know, like literally in terms of dollars. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And then over in the features, in the features, it's a mix. The features, stories, those are the longer ones, like the carbon capture story. Those tend to be more generated from, you know, me talking to my editor about what I'm hearing when I go to conferences. It's, you know, kind of what's the sense here? What's the, what are the trends? So sometimes those will be taken from or, you know, inspired in part by something a, a media relations person says, you know, hey, we're doing this thing. A bunch of other people are doing this thing. But a lot of times that's just more, that's more generated here on, the, on our side of the table. Got it. So how do you strike that balance? So if, you, you know, if you're talking about a story that, um, and many of your stories touch on a number of businesses, businesses that are potentially supporting ACS, your parent organization, or have members in them and you know, are just broadly chemical-based businesses. How do you strike that balance when you're trying to tell that story from the business perspective, from the science perspective, and frankly, not necessarily being an advertisement for somebody? That is a challenge for sure. And, then, and there's an additional challenge in there because as a chemical business reporter, I need the chemical companies to be willing to talk to me. But I have to remember that, that is, while that's true, it's the CNN readers that are who I'm writing for and who are ultimately you know, paying for me to have a salary and to be able to print the magazine in, in one form or another. I mean, it's a classic ethics question, I, I guess. I have to, you have to keep your priorities straight. I, I get the center of the question. The center of the answer is that I have to keep the readers in mind. And I have to be willing to, when I have to, kind of maybe make a chemical company media relations person a little mad at me. Now, it, it doesn't come up as much for CNN because if there's a big scandal, if it, you know, this cosmetic ingredient is actually derived from kitten eyeballs, we're not going to be the only people covering that. So we do occasionally break stuff that's embarrassing for the chemical industry, but that's not kind of our bread and butter. It's an active enough industry that that doesn't have to be. You have to go out and find somebody that is not motivated monetarily to be giving good news. So a lot of times that's going to come from an analyst or a consultant, somebody who their motivation for talking to me is they want to look publicly like somebody that knows what's going on and knows what they're talking about. And, you know, in, in a long game, they are looking to, you know, build clients in the chemical industry, but it's not necessarily the client I'm writing about. And yeah, when their motivation is to look informed, that's a good person to find. Got it. And do you have a hard time finding people willing to talk to you? It varies a lot story to story. You know, when, on some of the more controversial stories, like a, we did a story about PFAS and contamination and pollution in a river in Italy and in a couple of places in the United States. And there was not a lot of people that wanted to, you know, really comment on that. Yeah, they don't want their name associated with it or don't feel like they have the authority to do so? A, a little bit of both. I mean, it, for one thing, most of the consulting money is going to come from people trying to fix that problem and trying to maybe make that problem seem less of a big deal. And so a lot of people with the expertise, they have to kind of watch what they say because they want to be working with the companies one way or the other on addressing the problem. Sure. Makes sense. So, you know, I know another one that you've recently published is this article about benzene and personal care. Seems like it was a bit tough to, to get the con well, to get it down and get to the right content and get to the answers and solutions. I know P&G was cited in the article partially because they had recently been cited an organization, I think a governmental organization about this. I guess maybe a couple of questions. One is, is it tough to navigate these guys? And then two, do you get hate mail about this? 
people say, why are you, you know, why are you talking about benzene and personal care products? We, you know, you're supposed to be on our side and not on. Mm, yeah. We tend to get more angry letters when we don't go hard enough for, you know, consumer advocacy. We don't, at least I did, at least they don't get to me a lot of complaints from the companies generally. Those tend to more come in the form of them being less interested in responding to my emails next time around, but they don't usually clap back in the same way. Now, there was a story uh, where the companies did respond directly uh, to a story. It wasn't by me, it was by another author. Uh, it's going to bog me in. All right, like we'll come back to it. It'll, it'll come, back to come it. okay. when you're ready for it. So when you're thinking about writing a story, who's your target reader? You started referencing that, but who is, is there a single archetype? Are there several archetypes? Who do you write for? So we are very lucky as writers and journalists because defining your audience is one of the key problems, or not problems, but one of the key challenges in being a good writer. And we're lucky because we have that defined pretty well. Most of the subscribers for CNEN are members of the American Chemical Society. And so we can basically, our archetype is somebody who has at least a bachelor's level education in chemistry or an allied science. That might have been 30 years ago that they had that, but they, and, and they're working in something chemistry related. So we can assume that they're pretty technically savvy, can assume that they are motivated to, to know what's going on. And so that's kind of who we imagine. I, I often, because I'm a business writer, I'm imagining somebody who's in a managerial role at, you know, at Dow or, or BASF or one of the, you know, the bench chemists on the line there tends to be kind of who I imagine. <laughs> when I'm yeah, writing. it makes sense. And I think that's who's probably reading it, right? People that are interested in taking that topic to the next level, applying it to their business, doing a comparison, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, we do have some, we've had a number of articles, especially during COVID and then after that have gotten much broader readership through online you know, sources. Some of the, yeah, the COVID articles for sure. Some of the pharma team did a bang up job. And then we also had a story about uh, Delta 8 THC, which is a kind of a, a pot chemical. It's an alternative to, to regular THC. And that's actually become now our most popular article ever. So that's definitely reaching beyond our normal readership. So when we think we got a story like that, then we do tend to, you know, to work harder to bring the jargon down, work harder to make it accessible to the, lay, the layman when we have a story like that. And the benzene story is another one like that, where we worked a little bit harder to try and make it so that it, people that didn't have a chemistry background would be able to get everything they needed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually thought it was interesting. I think I had shared with you that just even this whole realization of the products that the benzene is showing up in, that, you know, frankly, are in my house, in my bathroom, in my medicine cabinet, et cetera, that I might be using or one of my kids might be using on a daily basis. Like, okay, I need to maybe think twice or just be mindful of it. I don't know. It's an interesting. It's an interesting dilemma being in the chemical industry, right? I'm not going to stop using chemicals. I recognize that there are hazards, but you also have to balance it with what's involved. And that is a more complex question and stuff. So I think it's uh, navigating that fine line in terms of hazard and risk and, and knowledge is important. And that was, an, that was an interesting story also, because it was a story that we were as CNN unusually well-equipped to cover well. Um, there's a lot of science, a lot of numbers. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of journalists that are good with numbers, but uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time converting units to try and get that graphic for that into, you know, pretty much all PPM per, parts per million. You know, Valisher, the company that's been digging up a lot of those results and doing these consumer surveys, reached out to us uh, and you know, said, hey, we've got this going on. Hey, we've got another one going on. Hey, we've got another one going on. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was one where we had to, you know, we were, we were holding the companies accountable in a way that, you know, isn't necessarily a regular feature for us. And, you know, they know they have a problem. And I was really happy that toward the end of the, the later benzene results, the chemical company, the, the, the product companies, I should say, the customers of the chemical companies were doing their own sleuthing and they were able to say like, hey, we think it's probably the propellants. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, right, you need to figure it out. Yeah. 
And I think so. I mean, I think everybody is, especially in the world that we're in where media and social media and sound bites have so much power. Companies actually do need to have a point of view on it, have done some work, have a perspective as to what the impact really is or really isn't. And I think the chemical industry has not always been as proactive as they could be, right? So I think they've, uh, you know, I don't know. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think there's this perspective that if I don't acknowledge it, the problem will go away, right? Which is, eh, that's a bit of human nature, right? We all have, we all experience that at times. But I think also in the, the sense that, it, that the view that the value in use of products far exceeded any problems that may have occurred. And that's obviously that tide has shifted quite a lot. And so I think we're, you know, more due diligence from companies just being able and ready to respond to these concerns, the media concerns, the, the studies that come from these independent labs, et cetera, I think is critical. There's been an increase in the consumer demand for transparency all the way up the value chain that hasn't necessarily been a major feature. So it has been, in a lot of the chemical companies, only a handful of them have consumer products. And most of them are selling to your P&G, your Unilever. But more and more, yeah, the consumer wants to know every bit all the way back to the you know, hole yeah. in the ground or Whether the plant or that it comes from. Whether they understand it, they, uh, they want to know. And there's a lot of work. I know that ACI is doing some work, particularly around transparency and labeling and trying to develop standards across that industry and others are as well. So I think that's pretty critical. So Craig, when you look at the year ahead, what's going to be the big stories? What do you see as upcoming big stories? Or, you know, if you don't know that, what's driving those storylines? What do you see? I think one thing that we're definitely going to see, and this is especially true, I think, in cosmetics and personal care, which is what, you know, part of my beats, is that People are dying to stop talking about COVID. And the thing that they want to get back to talking about is sustainability. It's kind of cool, you know, if you're into sustainability and if you're a progressive, because these companies want to be doing this work. They've actually been doing a lot of the work the whole time. Nobody's wanted to hear about it. And so they're looking forward to having that conversation uh, be a you know, bigger part of it. So I think that's going to be interesting to, to see and to write about. Carbon capture is going to be continued to be important and really interesting in this coming year. We're working on, toward the end of working on our World Chemical Outlook Package, which is coming out. Next, it's the 17th. That'll be out on the 17th. Okay. The 17th of January. So eh, probably just prior to us uh, publishing this podcast, so that'll be good. Yeah, there you go. Not perfect. So check it out. But yeah, the, the, the emergence of, chemi- of carbon capture, both as an essential, essential part of how the chemical industry continues to operate, but then also as a critical growth market for the chemical industry. And these technologies are maturing really fast. You're going to see some of these newer chemical or carbon capture technologies actually becoming commercial, well, not commercial products, but, you know, industrial products. Do you see the technology being driven by the current slate of chemical companies and chemical majors, or do you really see this as a breakthrough opportunity for new technologies, new companies? I think it's going to be a mix of both. I think, you know, the amine solvents, which is kind of the established way to do it, and even in some of the new technologies like carbon cleans modular unit still uses amines. And so some of that core technology has been really developed by existing chemical industry players. And the existing chemical industry players have a lot of the IP. And that's, you know, and then and, and they're being aggressive about it because they do see that as a growth market, at least, at least the smart ones do. But at the same time, it's a great opportunity for new technology, somebody coming in with this cool thing that they're commercializing out of academia. You do have to get from that kind of zero point to a very large scale really quickly in order to compete. But there's definitely an opportunity for, for upstarts to come in and disrupt because especially especially for chemical and for smaller carbon streams and more 
diverse ones like you see in the chemical industry, the technology there is is, is not it's not quite right. It's not quite ready. A lot of the technology, carbon capture technology, was developed developed for natural gas fired and coal fired power plants. And when you think about, I mean, chemical companies, I mean, I think we're all familiar with the majors, but the reality is there are thousands of small and mid-sized chemical companies that need reasonable solutions, reasonable, affordable, executable solutions. And I think another big driving storyline in 2022 is going to be, you know, the biorefinery, the conversion in specialty chemicals and increasingly even in commodity chemicals going from a chemical conversion process to a fermentation type process. That's going to be big in 2022 is my, is my sense of it. And then the coming few years, people are really interested in enzymes too, not even necessarily live microbes, also enzymes, enzyme conversion processes. Yeah. Do you see that as a, uh, of course, I mean, I think you're a bit more U.S. centric, but do you see that as a global topic or more of a U.S. European topic? That's a good question. I think it a lot of the activity does seem to be in the U.S. and the EU, actually probably even more the EU. At the same time, some of the really big players as far as volumes of current enzymatic transformation are in India. There, there are some of the leading firms are there. Some of the people that have been doing a, a handful of fermentation processes for decades saying, okay, well, what if we, we can do more with this? We can do more transformations. We can adapt our technology. We can adapt our platform. We can buy up some smaller companies and bring them into our platform to broaden our offerings. So there are a few groups. I mean, Tata Group does a little bit of that. There are a couple others uh, in India. So those are the three major areas, I'd say, okay. that I'm seeing Awesome. So we'll be looking for that. So we'll be looking at looking for sustainability, biorefineries, and carbon capture this year. I think so. I think so. <laughs> and then the surprises will come when they come. Absolutely. Well, Craig, this has been great. I appreciate you taking time. If people have an interesting story or want to just get in touch with you, how do they do that? So I'm on Twitter at uh, Craig of Waffles is one way to get a hold of me. You can also email me. My If you go on CNN's About page, my last name's kind of long to spell over an audio format, but you can give a link. Email is a good way to get a hold of me. Okay. And we'll, we can include a link to that in our show notes and transcripts so that people can access it easily. Yeah, and, we, and I'm definitely always eager to get good pitches and hear about trends and consider stories uh, for sure. Cool. Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks everyone for listening to the Chemical Podcast today. Make sure you like, listen, follow, and share. Thanks very much. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.